Well, do please turn with me back to John's Gospel and the last section of chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. If you've got the big black church Bibles, that's page 886. We read last time of John the Witness, John the Baptist, and his ministry, pointing people to the one who was to come, the Lamb of God. And we continue in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked intently at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That is about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked intently at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Your name shall be called Kephas, which means Peter, rock-like. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you all, that's a plural, you lot will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, keep your eye on that passage, please, and ask yourself the question, who is seeking who in these verses? Let me tell you the secret of getting a cup of coffee made when you're left alone, abandoned to watch a five-year-old boy. You play a game that we call hide and seek. But if you've ever seen a five-year-old boy trying to hide behind the curtain with his foot stuck out and snorts of laughter squirting through his fingers, you'll know that name is slightly misleading. The truth is that you know where he is long before you even finish counting. The art of playing that game is just to stretch out the search for as long as it takes to get the coffee down. And so whether you're meant to be the one hiding or seeking, the crucial thing is to establish where he really is right away. And from that moment on, the reality is that you're in control of the game. Well, verses 
35 to 51 of John chapter 1 tell us about the birthday of the Christian church, the day the first five apostles were drawn to Jesus Christ. And it certainly looks as if they are the ones doing the seeking. There's a chain reaction of evangelism here. John, the witness, points to two of his disciples and points them to Jesus. And as soon as people find Jesus, they go and bring and tell. So through all the ordinary ways, people are finding their way to Jesus here through a preacher, through a family member, through a friend. But who is really seeking who? Let me read you a summary from a commentary I love, but it's one of those lines that just seems to get repeated in almost every commentary. Jesus is shown here to be rather passive. Only once, in the case of Philip, does he actually call someone. That's true. Generally, the future disciple either comes to Jesus on his own or is brought to him through the efforts of another. Well, with the greatest respect to that scholar, I do wonder how long it's been since he played a decent game of hide-and-seek with a little boy. Yes, it certainly looks as if it's the disciples here doing all the seeking. But if you think that's really what's going on, then you haven't been paying attention. Jesus may be immensely calm and quiet and unhurried in how he draws people to himself, but the last thing he is here is passive. There's a beautiful confident control that he oozes in these verses over human hearts and human destinies. Yes, they are looking for him, but notice the repeated language used here about Jesus. He deliberately walks by John the Baptist, this time, verse 35, there's no stopping, today is decision day. And once he's passed them, verse 38, he turns to see that they're following. There's seeing language all over the passage, isn't there? But it goes both ways. Jesus is looking too. Even his call to them just oozes confidence, doesn't it? Come, and you'll see. That's it. Next comes Simon Peter, and what does Jesus do? Verse 42, he looks intently at him. Not the normal word for looking. It's the look John the witness looked at him with in verse 36, a look full of meaning. Jesus reads Peter like a book, looks right into his heart, and gives him a new name. What about Nathaniel down at the bottom? Well, yes, it's a friend who brings him to Jesus. But even before that friend ever went to find him, verse 48, Jesus had him in his eye. I saw you under the fig tree. And whatever was going on as Nathaniel sat under that tree, it's enough to convince him that this man is his Lord and King. And time and again in John's Gospel, Jesus shows an unnatural level of insight into the human heart. He sees right through us, knows exactly where we're hiding. So there's more going on in these verses than meets the eye at first. And these are not just any old conversion stories. Just notice how John already expects his readers to know who these people are. Did you spot that? Verse 40? Oh, and Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Well, wait a second, John. You've not introduced us to Simon Peter yet. He comes in the next verse. He's not even called that till verse 42. 
Everyone who picks up John's book, though, is expected to know that name already. He was one of the men who founded the Christian church, as are all the rest. These aren't just any old conversion stories. This is the story of how the witnesses who will introduce every one of us to Jesus first encountered him themselves. And they aren't primarily model conversion stories either. We could draw all sorts of lessons here about evangelism, couldn't we? Some of them useful lessons. But isn't the one controlling every moment of this game of hide-and-seek far more interesting than the game itself? Jesus is about to speak for the first time in the book, and it's a question. Surely a question John wants to poke every single reader with. What are you seeking? And then at the end, we have the first thing Jesus ever says about himself. It's his first ever, truly, truly, I tell you statement. Seriously, guys, listen to this, because it changes everything he's saying. The real subject of these verses is Christ. John wants us to marvel at him. In other words, he hasn't written this as a how-to on evangelism, to teach us how to point people to Jesus. He's written this primarily to point us to Jesus. He's going to tell us that nothing builds up faith like simply being with Jesus. There is something about an encounter with him that no amount of clever words can ever match. He is the lamb who opens hearts. He is the king who opens heaven. So come and see and stay a while with Jesus. First then, the lamb who opens hearts. It's days two and three of Jesus' public ministry. And both days, there's an encounter with Jesus, which leads in very ordinary human ways to a second encounter. But the thing that's the same across it all is this man before whom all hearts are open, who sees right through us. On day one, there's a searching question in the first encounter, and then a searching look in the second. On day two, Jesus goes searching directly. He does it himself. The one time he finds someone. And then in the second encounter, it all turns around a very unusual kind of seeing and knowing. One extraordinary master of events whose hidden initiative is always at work in the background. But he does use ordinary human means, doesn't he? First, there's the preacher, John the Witness. And it's a very similar scene here to the day before, but with one key difference. That time Jesus was walking towards John. This time he's walking away. Yesterday, John told the crowd that this very man was the lamb sent from heaven to take away the sins of the world. Now two disciples standing with him have to make a decision, don't they? Will they stay with the famous preacher who they love, the one the world is flocking to hear? Or will they actually follow the one that preacher is all about? And John the Witness is not remotely interested in keeping them for himself, is he? Isn't this lovely? It's not about the crowds anymore. It's about these two disciples of his who he cares about and their eternities. And so he essentially says to them, I have nothing more to say to you. 
No new message. Just what I told you yesterday. Here is the lamb. Time to decide. Look at Jesus before it's too late. And so they hear and they follow. It is how millions and millions of people have come to faith, isn't it? Ever since they hear and follow. Jesus uses preachers who point to him. Well, Jesus asks them a searching question next. John's question, John the writer, his question to you and me, surely. What are you seeking? What do you want to get out of Jesus? What brought you to church this morning? I wonder if we're ever as direct as just to ask that to visitors. It's great you're here. Tell me, what are you looking for? And their answer is very revealing, isn't it? What a strange thing to ask. We want to know where you stay. I don't think they're just interested in what kind of manse this new rabbi has. The point is that what they're seeking is him. Where do you stay? Maybe they don't know quite why, but wherever he's staying is where they want to be. They're drawn to him. It's a great John's gospel word again, abide. Where do you abide? We had it already, didn't we, last week? John told them that the spirit abides on Jesus. Now they want to abide with him. Rabbi, by the way, means a little more than just teacher. It's a possessive, my teacher, literally my great one. It's an encounter with Jesus that they want. Well, come and you'll see, says Jesus. What an amazingly understated altar call that is. Come and see. Whoever you are, you're very welcome. Wherever I am, you're very welcome to come. And so they come and they see, and it's about 4 p.m., the light is fading, tools are being downed all over Palestine, and presumably... Given how far it is, back to Bethsaida, where they live, they spend the night wherever Jesus is. They abide with him. That's three times now we've had that word. And I wonder what it was they saw that night as he opened up his home and made them a meal, and they sat around the table talking into the dark. Wouldn't we love to know? Here is the eternal one sent from the bosom of the Father to share the love and warmth of heaven with lost sinners. And it all began around a loaf of bread and a bit of a stew or whatever it was. We're not told a word of what was said or what their conversion experience was like. John's focus is on who they were with. Presumably as he writes this, that's the thing that he really remembers I take it that John is the second of these disciples, the one whose name is awkwardly and deliberately left out. And all these years later, as he writes this down, the thing he remembers isn't some dramatic conversion experience or game-changing apologetics. No, it's being with Jesus. Jesus was right. Come, and you'll see. We aren't one for Christ by staying objectively on the sidelines and slowly scrutinizing all the evidence and making up our minds. That's not how it works because we live in darkness and he's the light. We're one when we come close to Jesus himself and he shows himself to us. We can have such confidence, can't we, in who he is. If people meet him, Many of them will love him. If you or 
someone you care about is curious about Christian things, then don't be scared to dive right in. Step one is not a book on can I trust the Bible or is God anti-gay. Those might be helpful things to read. But step one is simply coming to wherever Jesus is, meeting him. And whatever they saw in him that night persuaded them of what they rushed to tell Peter. We found the Messiah. Now, do they know exactly what they mean by that? I don't think so yet. Messiah is the Hebrew word for God's anointed one, particularly his anointed king. John is actually the only writer in the New Testament to use that word Messiah. All the rest translated into the Greek word Christ. It's just another little clue that he's writing for people steeped in their Jewish Bibles. But what sort of Messiah is he? Well, the disciples are going to have to wait and see. Mark waits in his gospel, doesn't he, until halfway through the book, until he puts a confession like this in the mouths of the apostles. I don't think they understand it all yet. Mark also tells us that their calling was quite gradual. There's a more formal call later on when they leave their nets and they follow him. John is giving us the backstory, the very introduction. But already, in whatever took place around that dinner table, they see something in Jesus that completely captures them. And of course, they want to share it. It is the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? My brother needs to meet this man too. And so immediately, Andrew goes to find, tell, bring. Who is doing the seeking here? Well, Simon doesn't find Jesus, does he? Jesus finds Simon. It's just that in this case, he uses human means, the love of a brother. And it's so matter-of-fact. Andrew doesn't worry about his words or how it will come across. He just blurts out the fact that he's convinced by. We found the Messiah. Mic drop. <laughs> and then he brings him to see. See for yourself, because nothing builds faith like being with Jesus. It's the same in all four stories, isn't it? All sorts of different human means can bring us along, but it's an encounter with Jesus himself that does the business. While Jesus, verse 42, stares straight into Peter's heart. And what do you think he sees there? Presumably a man bursting with flaky enthusiasm. A heart that will deny him three times before it's even tested. And he gives that man the second most precious thing he will ever receive. A name that is completely contrary to his character. Peter the Rock. It's so understated, but Jesus Christ is master of the story, isn't he? I'm going to take you, lovely, enthusiastic, unreliable Peter, and in my grace, that's the stuff I will build my church out of. Right now, Peter doesn't have a clue what that will mean, but how much comfort do you think that name must have been in the years ahead? Day two comes, and this time Jesus does it himself. Sometimes God uses human means to bring people to his son, a praying mother, a brave friend. Just occasionally, he intervenes directly, miraculously. A man in Iran wakes up with a dream, and he knows he has to go and find a Christian. And Philip here gets the thunderbolt from heaven. 
Jesus goes to find him. Maybe his friends at dinner told Jesus about this other man in their hometown who's really on their heart. We don't know. But verse 43, it's Jesus who finds him and Jesus who summons him, and that is all there is to it. He's in the bag. And then Philip goes to find his friend, Nathaniel. And it's the same story, the same words. Find, tell, bring. Come and see. It's been about five minutes since Philip met Jesus, but once again, unashamed, just a bare statement of fact. You'll never guess what. We found the one the whole Bible's about, cover to cover. Moses and the prophets, that's a kind of shorthand for the whole story. And the sweetest thing about Philip's little bit of evangelism here is just how unembarrassed he is to finish this sentence. Look at verse 45. Could you ever imagine being brave enough to say something like this? The one who all of history has been pointing towards is actually a bloke who lives just up the road from you. Josh, son of Joe, from Nazareth. It's almost laughable, that sentence, which is why when we get to the end of the gospel, John is still making the very same point. The shock in that famous verse that closes chapter 20 isn't that John is claiming that someone is the Christ, the Son of God. You look carefully at the grammar in that verse, and the claim is more punchy. It's that the Christ, the Son of God, who everyone is looking for, is actually Jesus. The problem for John's Jewish readers is that Jesus is the wrong sort of Messiah. One who dies the wrong sort of death, and Nathaniel sees it straight away. If I came here and announced that the queen has had a big change of mind, and she's decided not to hand over the throne to Charles from Royal Windsor, but to a bloke called Dave who lives in Pilton, well, who would laugh the loudest? I reckon it would be the folk from Drylaw and Granton. The people who know just how ordinary Pilton is. And that's Nathaniel. You see, it turns out later on that he lives in a town called Cana, right on the doorstep of this little dusty village of Nazareth. And nobody is quite so snobby about small towns as the people who live in them. The problem with Nazareth isn't that it has a bad reputation. It just has no reputation. It is utterly ordinary. So sorry, Philip, but you've got the wrong Messiah. But Philip's response, again, is beautiful, isn't it? No big arguments. No attempt to clever him into the kingdom. Because he's met Jesus now, and he knows that is what people need. So he uses the same words that Jesus used the day before. Come and see. Come and see, Nathaniel. And so he comes, and this time, verse 47, Jesus sees. Once again, he sees right through him to the point where it actually makes Nathaniel a bit uncomfortable. Jesus says, look, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Day one of this book, yesterday, began with Israelites full of deceit and suspicion, didn't it? A whole committee of them coming to check out John the Baptist. Their part will get bigger and bigger as the story goes. But however skeptical Nathaniel was, he's not like that. A true Israelite come to seek out the true king of Israel. Let's give it a fair hearing. 
maybe we're meant to remember Israel's original name, Jacob the deceiver. Jacob's about to come into the story again. Well, here is an Israelite without any Jacob left in him. And that takes him back, doesn't it, when Jesus says that? How on earth do you know what's going on inside me, verse 48? We've only just met. Oh, no, Nathaniel. I've known you much longer than that. Long before Philip ever found you, I knew you. Inside and out. Seems so odd at first, doesn't it? That just because Jesus said he saw him sitting there under a tree, Nathaniel is willing to say, Rabbi, you're the son of God, king of Israel. It's a big leap. What's happened to that skeptical bloke from Cana? Of course, we don't have a clue, do we, what was happening in Nathaniel's heart as he sat there under that fig tree. Clearly, the point is that Jesus knows something that he had no human way of knowing. For Nathaniel, Jesus knowing where he was somehow proves that Jesus knows him inside and out. Was he sitting there wrestling with his conscience, a dark night of the soul? Was he dreaming embarrassing dreams about marrying the neighbor's daughter? Was he wondering whether to take his own life? Only he and Jesus will ever know Sometimes in ancient writing, the fig tree was a place for prayer. Perhaps it was Jesus Nathaniel was speaking to before he even knew it. But Jesus knew it. You see the point? Yes, he uses all sorts of natural human means to bring us to himself. And we need to take those seriously. We are how God has chosen to work and win the world. But none of us are here because our parents taught us the gospel, or our friends were brave enough to tell us about Jesus, or our inquiring minds led us to think about him. We're here because Jesus loved us ere we knew him. How incredibly kind is he that any of us are Christians? And for skeptical Nathaniel, that thought is overwhelming. The lamb who opens hearts But the climax comes in the very last two verses where, for the first time, this eternal word actually speaks about himself. Nathaniel, you will see far greater things than that because I am the king who opens heaven. It's a hilarious moment, isn't it? You believe all that just because I told you what you were having for breakfast, where you were sitting. You ain't seen nothing yet. But the greater things aren't quite what we expect. It's not that Jesus has won him round with a quick party trick, but he's promising something even more spectacular. No, it turns out the greater things he's going to see are not greater miracles, greater signs. It's the thing all those signs reveal. Right now, they think of Jesus as a king of some sort, a Messiah sent by God. When Nathaniel calls him son of God there in verse 49, almost certainly he means the same thing as king of Israel. They're two Old Testament titles for the same person, the Messiah. But John has already told his readers much, much more, hasn't he? We read that Jesus is the eternal son sent from heaven, sent from the father's side to open heaven to us 
and reveal the Father and bring us into that heart of all reality. Jesus, the Son, is Son in a far deeper sense than anyone in the story yet understands. But one day, they will see far greater things about the relationship he has with the Father and what that means for us. They will see heaven itself opened and a relationship restored between heaven and earth, two-way traffic, angels, messengers, coming and going between this world and its maker. And the bridge, the great ladder between heaven and earth is Jesus, the Son of Man. He's claiming here one of the most famous stories in the Bible from Genesis chapter 28, a dream that Jacob had, Israel the first, when God promised himself to him in covenant. It was a promise that God would be with him just as he was with his fathers. He's gone to sleep at maybe the lowest point in his life. He's on the run from home, lying on a rock for a pillow. And in his sleep, he has this strange dream of a ladder going up to heaven with the Lord himself stood at the top of it, speaking to him. And Jacob woke from his dream utterly terrified because he'd met with God. Surely, he said, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. He'd gone to sleep thinking he was lying on a rock and woke up realizing he was in a temple, a place where heaven kissed earth. And so he named the place Bethel, house of God, saying, this is the gate of heaven. He was terrified but also wonderfully encouraged because if the God of his father was with him, it meant he knew he would be given bread to eat and clothes to wear and he would come again to his father's house in peace. Well, what are we going to see Jesus doing in this gospel? He will give his children bread to eat and clothes to wear and he will bring them into his own father's house in peace. And through this newborn church, he will bless all the peoples of the earth, just as was promised to Jacob. Jesus is telling his apostles that they are about to see the reality of everything Jacob saw in his dream. But instead of a ladder, the gateway to heaven is him. Instead of an awesome place where heaven meets earth, it's an awesome person. The Son of Man is another great Bible name for the one who comes on the clouds of heaven. It's a terrifying sight, vested with all the authority of heaven and earth. He is the one who spoke to Jacob from the top of the ladder, and he's the ladder itself, the living link with heaven. Being with Jesus is the only way to hear the Father speak and to know him and to be drawn into heaven. Not just a king, but the king who opens heaven. And so John's message has been the same, hasn't it? Right the way through these verses, what is it you're looking for? Well, if you want to taste heaven, if you want to see what we apostles saw, you need to be with Jesus. Come and see and stay with him. 
So as we close, how do we do that? How do we encounter Jesus personally like they did? We're not going to bump into him, are we, under a fig tree? We can't see him face to face, not yet. But that's not to say we can't come close to this man in whom heaven meets earth, who sees right through us, who knows us inside out. If you're a Christian believer, someone born again by the miraculous will of God, then he lives in you all the time by his spirit. And when you meet together to worship with other Christian believers, the Bible says that somehow we are actually drawing close to the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven, I listened to a sermon this week by an excellent preacher, someone I admire a lot, but he spent his application bashing the sculpture on the outside of Bath Abbey as an example of how we get this wrong. I don't know if you've ever been to Bath. It's a beautiful place with a beautiful abbey, but the entire front is covered with a massive, dramatic carving of Jacob's Ladder, this dream. And presumably, for the medievals who built that abbey, They were trying to say, this is the place. This building is the awesome place where heaven and earth touch. And if that's what they meant, well, then this preacher was right. That is profoundly misguided theology because it's not a place anymore. The temple's gone. It's a person. But what are the means that person has given us? The most special means of all that we have to come close to him through. Well, that is the church, isn't it? Not the building itself, but the living temple inside it. This is the place right now where the one who opens heaven and sees right through us comes closest of all. When we sit around his table, as we will next week, Paul says we participate in Jesus himself. We feed from our Savior in heaven. When we listen to him speak through the Bible, we are literally hearing the voice of heaven. We said at the start, remember, that these are not just any old conversion stories. There's a reason John has told us about these men. In fact, his gospel will have a lot more to say about their ministry. John wanted us to see how the men who introduce us to Jesus encountered him for themselves as a living reality when they saw, when they came close to him. Because above all, it's going to be through their words that you and I can meet the same Jesus through the scriptures. Well, just as God uses means in bringing people to Jesus, a friend, a brother, a parent. God uses means in allowing us to be with him. And just as it was very ordinary and unhurried and undressed up in John chapter 1, it is very ordinary and unhurried and undressed up when we meet him today. But don't mistake it. Jesus is here with us doing business with our souls, quietly, unflashily, but with total mastery and confidence, drawing us to himself. And nothing builds faith like simply being with Jesus.
So come and see and stay a while with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, to know you is perfect freedom. And to be known by you is deeply challenging and yet deeply, beautifully comforting. And to be with you is the privilege of our lives. Thank you that you have overcome the sharpness of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. So help us, Lord, to come close and to stay with you. Amen.